0: Friends, we are exploring. Look at the Sikhs, volume 17, the Sikhah
1: of Shemini number three. The Sikhah is based on a discussion of today's Torah portion. It's the eighth day. That's the name of today's Torah portion. What does it mean, the eighth day? It's the eighth day of inauguration of the temple, the first day of temple revelation. The way it worked was that there were seven days of Moses inaugurating, practice run, if you will. On the eighth day, aha, that's when the Shekhinah came down. The divine presence was revealed, something that was long awaited. The Jews uh, waited for this day to feel God's presence, to know that they were atoned for the golden calf and that the Shekhinah, the presence of Hashem, will be with them. It's the greatest day uh, of history to that point in languages. Uh, on that day, it took 10 crowns, 10 extraordinary things, first-time things, the first day of the presence of the Shekhinah, the first day of temple service, first day of the sacrifices, first day of the priesthood. It was a big deal. In fact, it's pointed out, parenthetically, this is why it's called the eighth day, because seven is, 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 is the maximum, the culmination of nature, seven days of the week, including Shabbos. Eight means beyond nature. That's why Hanukkah, there's eight days and an eight, a branch candelabra versus the temple, which is only seven, because Hanukkah represents that miracle, that beyond, uh, that infinity, uh, those who like the Eighth Day band, they got that name from today's Torah portion. Why is it called the Eighth Day? Because they're trying to introduce Hasidic concepts, the concepts of Jewish mysticism, etc. Jewish spirituality, the eighth dimension. So it's a very special day. The Jews were all waiting for that day. The Shekhinah did in fact appear, and then tragedy struck. The two sons of Aaron. Um, did something that they should not have done, their various opinions. But let's just take in a face value the way the narrative is written. They enter the Holy of Holies. Uh, they were too inspired, too excited by this great revelation, and they went where they shouldn't have gone. And uh, the heavenly fire came and consumed them. So Aaron, on this greatest day of his life, when he becomes the high priest, suffers the loss of two out of his four sons. And yet he took it with faith. The language is Aaron was silent. He accepted God's decree. He was rewarded that God in turn addressed him personally by the following mitzvah that, that followed this discussion. Um, and it was considered a big deal that Aaron was silent, which is a Jewish response to tragedy, silence. That's why a mourner doesn't speak. We give him eggs or bagels with there's no mouth. And there's nothing to say. And, and the connotation of that is acceptance and yet not rationalization. We don't rationalize. We don't say, well, they're meant to be. No, it's painful. At the same time, we don't question God. We don't doubt God. And therefore, silence is the best response. So that's what happened. Great day, and yet a tremendous tragedy. Said Hashem to Moshe, to Moses, I know it's a very sad moment for Aaron, but the party must go on. There's an inauguration of the temple. It's, It's a historic day. And that overrides the mourning of Aaron. Let the Jews mourn in their stead. Aaron and his sons need to continue the service uninterrupted. And the language of the Talmud, and which Rashi quotes, also is that if there's God forbid a death at the wedding, even if the bride loses her own father, the wedding goes on. That's Jewish law. The wedding goes on. The mourning has its own place, but not now and not here. Similarly, Aaron and his sons were told to go on. If God forbid uh, a, a normal time when a Kohen has a loss, he would obviously not serve in the temple that week. Another Kohen can take his place. But this was the inauguration day. The high priest and the two remaining Cohens. there was nowhere to go. They need to inaugurate the temple. And that day has such a great meaning and such a great joy that it overrides their personal mourning. Uh, in fact, the instruction here was the Jews would do the mourning, Aaron's nephews or what have you, Aaron and his sons, they need to go on and the service goes on, interrupted as if there's no concept of mourning. And there was a practical side to that and that was, that while normally a Kohen who's in mourning and this is a heightened level of mourning it's called Aninut, the Hebrew word for mourning is Avelut. Aninut is a heightened level of mourning which is even before the person is, the loved one is buried at which time people don't even do mitzvahs, you don't even put on tefillin in the state of Aninut. And normally a Kohen who is in the state of Aninut, referred to as an Onin, the first day after a tragic loss, before the burial even, which was the case here, that person is proscribed from eating any of the sacrifices. And here Aaron and his sons were told, no, that they should eat the sacrifices, because again, this is a special day of inauguration that overrides the Aninot and the morning. And therefore, they were told, and they in fact did that, they ate the sacrifices of the day, especially the sin offerings, which um, are are eaten, the portions of the sin offerings are eaten by the priests, and their eating is consequential in terms of gaining atonement. And therefore, the Kohen must eat. It's not like it's, uh, it's, uh, it's optional, it's not like someone else can eat it, like peace offerings, the sin offering, much of it goes on the altar, and the part that's eaten is eaten only by the Kohanes, and the Kohen gives atonement by eating it, and therefore they had to eat it even though they were in a state of aninut. It overrides it. This is a day of inauguration, it's a wedding day of God and the Jewish people. Put the morning aside. However, there's a but. The but was that there were two types of sin offerings on that day, two types of offerings that would warrant priestly consumption. One was a special sin offering that was just brought for that inauguration
0: day. It was a one-time thing. The sin offering brought for that inauguration. The other is
1: a sin offering that will continue to be brought every Rosh Chodesh moving forward. There's a sin offering that's brought every Rosh Chodesh. Doesn't matter the significance, but that's how it is. And that wasn't just brought that day, which happened to be Rosh Chodesh Nisan. But it will be brought every subsequent Rosh Chodesh for all of time. The temples, the tabernacles, what have you. So far, some 1,200 plus years of Rosh Chodesh where that sin offering was brought. Till Mashiach comes and it will be continued again. So there were two types of sin offerings, two categories of sin offerings. Sin offerings that, that were brought on that day only for that day which were, let's call them uh, momentary. They were for that special moment. And there were sin offerings that were generational, that will continue to be brought in the future. Aaron split the difference. Aaron decided that while the sin offerings that are for that special day of inauguration, they're inauguration-related, they override mourning. However, the sin offerings that are generational, that will bring next month and the month after, and for all future time when there's a temple, they shouldn't over, uh, be, uh, override the mourning. This still a mourning, people die. And those sin offerings, Aaron told his sons and himself, no, we're not eating them. What do you do if there's an offering that cannot be eaten? He had them burnt. He split the difference. And his logic was, it's true that God said that what? That the temple's inauguration overrides the fact that we're in mourning. That should be relevant and pertinent only to offerings that relate to the inauguration strictly, namely the momentary offering." that which is what only for that special day, but the generational offering that which is going to be business as usual moving forward. Why should that be overridden by morning? It's not inauguration related. It so happens to be that it's on the inauguration day, but it's not inauguration related. It's ordinary related. And therefore Aaron said, no, we eat this. We don't eat that. When it comes to this, we act like we're not in mourning. When it comes to this, however, we, we, we we do reflect the fact that at the end of the day, we're still in mourning. That was Aaron's decision. Moses heard about this and he got angry and he got upset. And he said to Aaron, why did you burn the offerings? Don't you know it's an inauguration day? Aaron, I know that you had a tragic loss of both sons and it's beyond and it's unimaginable. However, you're Aaron, you're you're, you're Aaron. You're a person of, 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 of tremendous divine faith and inspiration. And you were instructed by God through Moses that what? That this is a day which Hashem wants the, the celebration to continue. Hashem's Shekhinah is coming down and that trumps everything. How come you decided to split the difference and burn some of the offerings? And Aaron went ahead and explained it to Moses and he said, Moses, but think about this. There's a difference between the offerings of the day and the offerings of all future time. And therefore, these second category, this latter category, should be burnt because it is not part of the inauguration. And after Moses heard it, he said, you know what? You're right. That is the narrative of the verse.
0: And that's what the sicha will be based on. So let's bring it up on the screen. Going from the top. So we have Moshe and Aaron.
1: Moshe's argument is all sacrifices should be eaten. Why? Because temple inauguration overrides the morning. And Aaron's position is, sacrifices of the moment should be eaten, but sacrifices of the generations should be burnt. Sacrifices of the moment meaning those that are special for that inauguration day, special sin offerings that were brought, what have you. But the offerings of every Rosh Chodesh, a sin offering that's going to be brought for all future generations. No, that does not override the morning. Two ways to look at this. And the Torah concludes. Aaron explained his position, and Moses heard, and it pleased him. In Hebrew, "Ayishma Ayitav Moses heard, and it pleased him. And the Talmud explains, but this is a very wordy type of expression. It could have just said Moses agreed. It says Moses heard, and it pleased him. Something happened. This is a praise for Moses and his humility that he accepted and he admitted,
0: Aaron, you're right, I'm wrong, which is a big deal for a leader. Says the Talmud, I'm reading the left column. He admitted, and he wasn't bashful to say, I haven't heard this law. Rather, he said, I heard and I forgot. That's the Talmud. Moses heard and he was pleased
1: which indicates some kind of admission, some kind of humility. Aha, he admitted, he came clean. He could have said, I never heard this. And instead he said, no, I heard it and I forgot, which is a big admission for the leader of all the Jews to, to, to make. Some of the biggest problems in the world come from leaders who may be very charismatic and powerful, and they don't know how to admit that they're wrong. And, and the ego gets to them, here's Moses, the king. And his brother, so to speak, bests him and he not only says you're right but he could have just said you're right i didn't know that he said you're right and i forgot that law that's an admission that he forgot a law big deal big moment that's the Talmud. and then we have rashi just to put in perspective rashi is a commentary that's a thousand years approximately post talmud they're not usually line by line associated usually when you have rashi He's arguing with Rambam, Nachmanides, Maimonides, Eben Ezra, et cetera, the commentaries that we showed the early commentaries. Talmud is classic oral Torah. Rashi doesn't argue with the Talmud the same way Talmud wouldn't argue with the, with the Bible. Why did I line them up the same? Because I'm trying to point out the fact that Rashi, in this case, as he often does, quotes the Talmud, quotes the classic oral Torah, and yet doesn't quote it completely. And as we're going to see, The commentaries on Rashi and the Rebbe differ in how they read Rashi. Rashi cuts and pastes from the Talmud. Aha, but not completely. What does he mean? Is he in fact saying the same thing as the Talmud, or for some reason, is he trying to indicate a different approach? So let's read it. Rashi seems to quote the Talmud, and I'm lining it up exactly. He admitted and wasn't bashful to say, I haven't heard this law. But Rashi doesn't say the rest of the Talmudic phrase. Namely, rather he said,
0: I heard and forgot. Rashi doesn't say this. So what does he mean? So the commentaries on Rashi,
1: apparently all of them agree that Rashi is really saying the same thing as the Talmud.
0: He doesn't say the last line, but he means it. He means it. How is it how is it read in the Rashi if it doesn't say it?
1: That what the Rashi is saying that he actually said, I heard and I forgot. Not that I haven't heard this law, but that I heard and I forgot. Rashi doesn't say it. Well, they're reading it rhetorically the same way it's in the Talmud. What does the Talmud say? He admitted, he was in Bashful to say, I haven't heard this law. That's rhetorical. He didn't say, I haven't heard this law, which would have been bashful. Rather, he said, I heard and I forgot. He said the Emmas. And that's how the commentaries on Rashi read this Rashi. He admitted and wasn't bashful to say, I haven't heard this law. Not that he said, I haven't heard this law. No, it's rhetorical. He was not bashful, in which case he would have said, I haven't heard this law. But in fact, he said, I heard and I forgot. That's how the commentaries, apparently all, read this Rashi. He's the same as the Talmud, that Moses forgot the law. Again, even though it doesn't say it in Rashi, this line is empty here. It doesn't say he
0: heard and forgot. It actually says he never heard it. But they're saying, come on, he's quoting the Talmud. It's rhetorical.
1: So he doesn't have to say the whole thing. It doesn't mean that Moses said, I haven't heard it. It means He wasn't bashful to have said I haven't heard it, but he really admitted that he heard it and forgot it. That's how Miforshe Rashi, the classic commentaries upon the Rashi, explain it. It's rational enough. It's rational enough, and why is it rational enough? Because that's the source of the Rashi, the Talmud. So he chose to, to brevity. Comes along the Rebbe, and brilliantly says, I don't understand what you're saying. Rashi is famous, if for nothing else, for precision.
0: You're telling me that he means what the Talmud says when that's the part he doesn't say? He doesn't say his main point. He says the rhetorical and doesn't say the actual. If Rashi wanted to be brief,
1: the Rebbe doesn't really say this, but he could have said, He admitted, I heard, and I forgot. He only says the rhetorical and omits the actual. The Rebbe says that's impossible. Rashi says what he means. He's very precise. You know, sometimes in the Talmud it says something and it means to deduce something else. But in Rashi, everything is supposed to be apparent. He's teaching a a student, even a five-year-old, and he's explaining Torah on the literal level, and he's trying to be precise and careful in his choice of words. And you want to say that what he said is not really what he meant. He meant the rest of the phrase, which he omitted. The Rebbe says, "Uh uh-uh, that can't be the case. It's not Rashi's style. If you take Rashi seriously, you understand his stated goal of clarity and, and simplicity, simplicity and being literal. He doesn't say it. And therefore, the Rebbe comes, and this is very innovative, for the Rebbe to differ with largely all the other commentaries on Rashi. Clearly, the Rebbe differs with respect. I mean, these are great, great commentaries, but the Rebbe is coming and innovating and saying, no, Rashi means what he says. Moses never heard this law. This is a huge difference in the reading of the Rashi. It's novel. It's mind-blowing. And again, what's the virtue of each side? Well, the virtue of the commentaries, let's call it the leg to stand on of the commentaries that Rashi's intent is like the Talmud? Because he's based on the Talmud. It's logical. But the Rebbe's argument is very strong. It doesn't say it. And therefore the Rebbe argues that Rashi means exactly what he said, even though it has the exact adverse, inverse meaning of the Talmud. He's quoting the Talmud, and it means the exact opposite. Let's take a look at this line. If you took, if you compare the Rebbe to the commentaries' approach on Rashi, they are a polar opposites. The commentaries say Rashi is quoting the Talmud. And what does Rashi mean? That Moses forgot the law. And the Rebbe says that Rashi means Moses never heard the law, which is the opposite of the Talmud. Two opposite approaches.
0: And again, this is brilliant because the Rebbe is arguing that's what Rashi says. Now, Okay, that's what Rashi says, but the Rebbe further
1: further substantiates it. Why would Rashi say this? Why would Rashi differ from classic oral Torah, from the Talmud, and and, and not say what he says in the Talmud, which is his source? Now, again, Rashi, even though he quotes Talmud or Medrash, other classic oral sources, doesn't always say the exact same thing, because Rashi's stated goal for his commentary is to to spoon-feed the Torah, to us on the literal level of understanding. The Talmud is more illegal, the halachic level, and therefore it, it's not really a problem if Rashi, so to speak, takes a somewhat different approach than the Talmud. But the question is why would he do it? There has to be a reason. There has to be that in Rashi's way of thinking, namely pshat, the literal level of interpretation of text, which is the first and foremost level of Torah study, it doesn't make sense to go by the Talmud, whereas on the Talmudic level, the halachic level, it's fine, but on the Rashi level, it's not. And therefore Rashi will deviate from Talmud, but he's gotta have a reason. He's not just gonna deviate because he wants to be creative. So the Rebbe points out at the bottom of the screen, why does Rashi differ from the Talmud? Why does Rashi, so to speak, deviate and change the Talmud from its simple meaning to the opposite meaning? Not that he forgot, but that he never heard it. Why would Rashi do this? Why would he turn it on its head? The Rebbe gives two reasons. A, on the literal level of the Torah study, it's not a praise to say that Moses didn't lie.
0: According to the Talmud, that's the praise. Praising Moses. That he said, I heard it and I forgot. And what would be the other choice?
1: To say I never heard it. That's a praise, but it's a lie. It would have been a lie. You're praising Moses that he didn't lie? That's hardly a praise. On a Talmudic level, it may make sense. On a legal level, but on a Rashi level, Everything has to make sense on the literal level of Torah study, on the most basic, fundamental level, to say the Torah is praising Moses. Aha! Aha! Really, he heard it and forgot it. And he owned up to it. He didn't say, oh, I never heard that. That's a praise for a Moses that he didn't give an outright lie? Makes no sense. And therefore, Rashi deviates from the Talmud and says, what really happened is that
0: Moses said, I never heard it because he never heard it. (laughs) So creative. I never heard it. And how is that a praise? It's still a praise because if
1: he wanted, he could have remained silent and said, Aaron, you're right. He didn't have to admit, I never heard it. You know, there's a difference between saying a lie and not saying the whole truth.
0: So Rashi is arguing, says the Rebbe, to praise Moses that he didn't say, I never heard it when
1: he did, that's not a praise. That would be a lie. But to praise Moses that he came clean and said, I never heard it, when he could have just nodded and said, you know what, you're right, without explaining, he wouldn't look so bad as when he came clean and said, I never heard that. It means I already know something I don't know. It's not a lie. It's just it's just not. It's not humiliating yourself, so to speak. And Moses went ahead and did it anyway. And that is fine. And therefore Rashi deviates it. That's point A at the bottom of the screen uh, that the Rebbe maintains, that Rashi deviates from the Torah, because it wouldn't make any sense on the literal level of Torah study to say, we're praising Moses because he never lied. Brings to mind the case of the Rebbe's library, when a non-Jewish judge sifted. One of the things that he used to prove the case, it's impossible, I'm quoting almost, of a man of the stature of the sixth rebbe to say something that he doesn't mean. It's impossible for a, for a, for a Moses, for a rebbe, for a, a, a tzaddik to say something he doesn't mean. It's not even a praise. In that case where, where one of the substantiations that the library really belonged to the Chabad community and not to him personally, is because of the way he, he referred to it in his letter to the librarians at the, at the Jewish Theological Seminary, where the other side said, well, he... He called it the Chabad Library because he wanted to ingratiate himself with them, but it's really his personal library. And Judge Sifton, a non-Jewish judge, says, are you kidding? From everything we got to know about Rabbi Schneerson, uh, the sixth rabbi, it's just impossible that he would say something that's not absolutely true. Just something that came to mind. And then there's B, that the Rebbe argues his case of why Rashi deviates from the Talmud, which is even stronger to my thinking. If you read the seeker, there's A, B, and C, but B and C are, are, are very similar. And that is, so Aaron corrects Moses, and Moses says, I like it. He gives a subjective opinion. I agree. Hello, if he heard it from God and he forgot,
0: and now Aaron's jogging his memory, would he say, I like it? You like it? Are you kidding? God likes it. Moses heard God
1: say it, and then he forgot, and now he's reminded that God, in fact, said it. It doesn't make any sense for him to say, and you know what? I also like it. He would say, oh, how did I forget? You're right. God said it. He would say, God likes it. When you say Moses liked it, it's a subjective statement. It means we did not hear clearly from God one way or the other. We're arguing on the basis of logic. And first Moses thought one way, and then Aaron thought another. And Moses says, I agree with your way of thinking. It is clearly evident from the text that Moses didn't forget anything. He never heard it. How the Talmud says different? Again, the Talmud is a legal level of study. But Rashi, who is a text, strictly text level of study, cannot say that. Hence, the Rebbe comes along based on the logic of A and B. And based on the language chosen by Rashi, maintains, and in my view, it's airtight, a new way of looking at the
0: Rashi, unlike the way it was looked at by all the commentaries on Rashi, pre-Rebbe. The opposite of the Talmud. And to, 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 to recap that, that not that Moses
1: knew and forgot, but he never forgot. Not that the argument between Moses and Aaron is what did God say, but the argument between Moses and Aaron is a logical one,
0: because Moses heard nothing from God about it. It's a logical debate. That's the Rashi approach. Now. The Rebbe brilliantly then substantiates it further. The bottom line. What's the bottom line? That this is a logical debate. According to the Talmud, it's
1: a debate of revelation. What did God say? And God said one thing and Moses forgot and Aaron corrected him. It's a debate, so to speak, about what God says. But in the way Rashi teaches it in the Rebbe's thinking, it's a logical debate. God said nothing. Aaron logically deduced one way, Moses logically deduced another way, and then he accepted Aaron's way of thinking. Says the Rebbe, I'm going to prove it to you further, but this is the approach of Rashi. How so? Because when we come to the portion of Matos, which is the last chapter in the book of Numbers, uh, uh, the, second to the last chapter portion in the book of Numbers. The Jews conquer the Midianites, and there's a whole discussion there that they had to kosherize all the vessels, and Moses forgot a particular law about the kosherizing. He got angry at, at, at Aaron's son, Elazar and at the soldiers, what have you. And he forgot a particular law, and Eleazar had to correct him. It doesn't matter what that law is. In that case, comes along Rashi and says that Moses forgot three laws in Torah, and each time because he got angry. I when you get angry, you make a mistake. Which is an interesting lesson, even though we're talking about Moses on his stature, but we take that lesson for us, and Rashi enumerates it three times. Number one, the current case here, and our portion. Number two, the case there where Rashi mentions it, the portion of Matos, the kosherizing situation, and number three, the hitting of the rock. Uh, Rashi lists them all three in that instance. And the Rebbe says, it's very curious Why Rashi waits to the portion of Matos to list all three. If he wants to teach us the concept that when a person gets angry, they forget the law. He should have listed it the first time it appears,
0: namely in our portion. It says in our portion, Moses got angry, and it seems like he forgot the law. However, based on the earlier conclusion that Moses didn't forget anything,
1: this debate with Moses and Aaron wasn't about the law. It was about a logical debate. We can't say Moses forgot something. You might say the worst case, Moses misjudged, miscalculated. So therefore, there's no need for Rashi to jump to a conclusion that that was the reason why he slipped up, because he got angry. Why would Rashi jump to that conclusion? And it's it's a negative conclusion. It doesn't make Moses look in the best light. Rashi's not running to that unless he has to. to. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to say the anger caused the slip up. Because remember, here we're deciding that the slip-up is not forgetfulness. The slip-up is not really a slip-up. It's a different way of viewing the law. It's a different logical approach. Why, why connect it to, to anger? Leave it alone. However, when it comes to the section of Matos, where there clearly he forgot the law, so then now we have already an instance in Torah, and we have similarities. Anger brings forgetfulness. Anger brings a mistake the hitting of the rock. So Rashi also connects this one, because the only three times in Torah where anger is mentioned related to Moses, and therefore there's a connection of all three. So Rashi says, you know what, yeah, anger brings a a, a lack of the best judgment. In our case, it's not forgetfulness, it's a lack of the best judgment, He needs Aaron to correct him. It's the same difference, but Rashi waits until Matos to bring it in, and that only works if you are seeing Rashi in the light of the Rebbe's approach that the debate was a logical one. And if that's the case, you have no reason to connect anger with forgetfulness in our portion because there was no forgetfulness. Whereas if you read the Rashi, like all the other commentaries, the Rashi is really saying the same thing of the Talmud, that Moses heard it and forgot it. Why didn't he right away say that? It's the exact same scenario as the portion of Matos. He forgot a law because of his anger. Rashi doesn't say it. Says the Rebbe brilliantly because he never forgot a law. This wasn't a forgetfulness situation. This was a a different approach situation. And you can give him the benefit of the doubt and say maybe his approach is correct too. Only when we come to Matos do we sum up all three cases of anger and forgetfulness. I taught this class in my own community. One of the people community says, don't you think the Torah is pointing out that Moses is, is just like us and he gets angry? And I said, you know, when I can make a list of the three times in my life that I got angry, then I'll compare myself (laughs) to Moses. Uh, The example that I like to give when we talk about the sins of Moses and the sins of Abraham that he let Sarah go to the king and the sins of King David, the sins of reuven you know what I mean? The holy people, the the biblical figures that Torah tells us about their sins. I use a very uh, basic analogy. I said, you know, I once went to, when I was a kid, um, uh, I once went to a professional baseball game and I was a big Yankees fan. I was very excited. And the shortstop, his name was Bucky Dent. And he made an error and I'm sitting there in the stands and I had my jersey and I had my glove and I was all excited and he made an error and the other team got a score and I was really upset. And uh, my, uh, my teacher who had taken me to the ball game looks at me and he says, relax. He says, that's a multi-million dollar error. He says, unless you're Bucky Dent, you can't make such an error. You know what I mean? Most people wouldn't even get close to that ball. Uh, for him, this is an error. For most people, this is uh you know superhuman. Um, how much more so we talk about the righteous and the Torah talks about their errors? Let's not be foolish to put ourselves in the same boat. It's pointing out that on their level. In fact, each time Moses gets angry, it's because of an extraordinary thing. As the Rebbe will conclude later in the Sikha, Moses disagreed with Aaron because. Moses is really right on the Moses level. And the same thing would be true in the other two instances as well, as the Rebbe explains in those respective cases. There is no such thing as a Moses really making a mistake. However, by comparison to his stature, yes, there's an error which is there to teach us something. But again, this screen that you're looking at is to make this one singular point that the Rebbe further substantiates the Rebbe's approach, that Rashi is, in fact, differing from the Talmud, explaining that Moses and Aaron are having a logical argument, rather than arguing what God had said, which makes uh, which makes further sense, considering the fact that Rashi does not connect Moses' mistake to anger until Matos, because here it's not necessary to take that route. Then the Rebbe goes into the Chasidis. And the Rebbe says everything in Torah has deeper meaning. Why do we need to know this? It could have just been, you know, tell us the bottom line. And how is this instructive to us? This was something that happened once, on the day of the inauguration of the temple. It's not something we have to know now. What's the point of, of telling us not only the bottom line, but telling us that Moses had a different opinion, Aaron had a different opinion. Why would Moses choose A and Aaron choose B? And then why would Moses then agree to Aaron? This is in Torah, Torah of truth. It has to be relevant and instructive to each of us at all times and places and to all people. The Rebbe says a beautiful Hasidic interpretation. And that is that Moses and Aaron, the two eternal teachers, leaders of our people, represent MS and chesed, truth and kindness. Uh, you might say Moses is the teacher in the front of the class, Aaron is the teacher or monitor in the back of the class, helping the students that are falling behind as a kid i always loved the fire trucks that had a driver in the front and a driver in the back in a good situation in a chabad house you know there's the shliach who's in the front giving the speech and then there's always the shliach in the back who's walking around and bringing in the people who are not so interested and that's the role of moses and Aaron. moses is truth Emes. he's the prophet he sees the way things are from hashem's perspective and that's wonderful however not everyone is able to take the truth some people are having a hard day and for that you have Aaron he's kindness chesed that's why Aaron is famous as it says in Pirkei Avos be a disciple of Aaron love peace and pursue peace love the people bring them closer to Aaron, Aaron it seems when he had free time and he wasn't working in the temple he was hanging out with the troublemakers with the with the bums with the with the, with the OTD people the off the derech, the people who were confused and lost and those were Aaron's friends he understood our fallacy, our human weaknesses. We're human beings. We're not all perfect. And we're not always perfect. And we have our good days and bad days. That's our strength. That's why the Kohen blesses us. And he blesses us with love. But Ahava, as the blessing goes before the Birchas Kohanim, he understands our, who we are. And these two roles of Moses and Aaron, namely truth and kindness, reflect the fact the way it's explained in the Zohar that Moses and Aaron are like the Shushvinim, companions, in Yiddish, who bring the bride and groom together. In Torah, the bride and groom need to be brought together. They're coming from two worlds, Mars and Venus, if you will. And their, their respective parents bring them close. In a holy Torah environment, they're not running to each other. They need to be brought to each other with modesty, and with, with support to bridge the gap, if you will, from the two worlds of, of the man and the woman. In the case of Hashem and the Jewish people, Moses is the Shushvina, the Malka, as it's called, the companion, the Unterfeder of God. Aaron is the Unterfeder, the companion of the Jewish people. Moses is, so to speak, closer to God. He's a man of God. He spent 40 days on the mountain without having lunch three times. He's a man of God. He's human, but not really, because his soul is as holy and as perfect as it was on high before it was born even though it's in a human body. That's why he's called Moses, which comes from the word benhamayim, you see, who is plucked from the water. Water is a connotation of heaven, shamayim, heaven, water, because water is a source of life. Heaven is where everything is within its source. It feels God, etc. And that's why Moses is in a different plane. That's the mystical reason why he can't speak because he's too close to truth. I often give the example, when you're celebrating your friend's wedding, you can elaborate on how happy you are. If it's your own child's wedding, you're pretty much speechless.
0: It's, it's, it's beyond speech. Speech is limiting. Moses can't speak. He's there. So he's truth. He's heavenly. He brings God to us, so to speak.
1: Aaron, on the other hand, so to speak, one of us, but he's one of us on steroids. He's the perfect Jew. He's the inspired Jew. He's the selfless, totally humble Jew and holy, and therefore he's able to bring us to the table. He understands our weaknesses and he understands our ability to rise to the occasion. And that's why there were those two leaders. The Rebbe explains elsewhere that in subsequent generations, there were many generations with two leaders, but in subsequent generations, especially in the Hasidic leaders, they played both roles. If you look at the, at the Rebbe himself and all the rabbis, on the one hand, they represented truth, Torah, unadulterated, the highest level of righteousness and perfection. Conversely, they also were empowered to understand our perspective and have the patience for each individual and to to shepherd
0: us each on our own level. But that's Moses and Aaron. Says the Rebbe, now you can understand the debate. I'm going to start with a point that's hinted
1: to in the footnote, and then I'll get to what it says in in the text itself. Moses says to Aaron, Why is there any conversation about mourning, aninut, or impurity? From where Moses sits, from the perspective of heaven, everything's perfect. There is no concept of impurity. There isn't really a concept of mourning, of death. From the heavenly perspective, what happened when a person dies? Not really nothing. The soul lives from here, the soul goes there. There's no real
0: change from the perspective of truth. There is no such thing as death. Death is, is, is an illusion from the perspective of the soul because the soul is eternal. Aninut, impurity, mourning. What's there to mourn? Everything's good. He's
1: challenging Aaron. He's saying, Aaron, come on. It's, it's temple inauguration. And Aaron says, yeah, but we're human too. The Torah was given to human beings. It's a mitzvah to mourn. We, 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 we relate to loss on our plane. The truth is a balance. We don't over-mourn because we know that Moses is right, but we mourn because Aaron is right too. We're human beings. If a person doesn't mourn, it's a sign that they're sadistic. It's not kosher. But that becomes a debate, or the way the Rebbe explains it in the actual sicha. Remember, what are they arguing about? They're arguing, should we or should we not consider the generational sacrifices with the same law as the momentary sacrifices? where Moses says all sacrifices of that day override mourning because it's a day of inauguration. Aaron makes a differentiation. No, there's the momentary sacrifices of this special day, and then the generational sacrifices, which are going to be business as usual, and that's different. So the Rebbe sums it up sort of metaphorically by saying, from Aaron's perspective, time matters. There's a difference between today and tomorrow, a difference between momentary and generational. They're not all lumped. From Moses' perspective, time is inconsequential. Why? Because if you're on the level of Moses, you're always consistent. You're living by virtue of your soul. And the soul world is no such thing as time. Everything is perfect. And that's why a righteous person doesn't have good days and bad days. A real tzaddik. A Moses. Doesn't have days where he's more inspired and less inspired. What does that mean? Why should things change? Truth is truth. Perfect consistency. Aaron says, excuse me, dear brother. We're not all Moseses. We're Aaron's. We're humans. We have days when we're more inspired. We have days when we're less. We're days when we're stronger. Days when we're weaker. It's not all one equal plane. You can't expect consistency. And therefore, we absolutely should differentiate between offerings that are about the inauguration day and offerings that are going to be on a regular business as usual day. Business as usual, we're affected by it, the loss. Inauguration day, we're more inspired. So the Rebbe is playing that card, so to speak, of uh, whether or not time matters, so to speak, whether or not a person is expected to be totally consistent or not, playing it into the words of momentary sacrifice versus generational sacrifice. And therefore, the debate becomes of tremendous consequences, of tremendous depth. Moses is angry and says, oh, we have a chance to introduce the Jewish people to a higher level. It's reminiscent of the fact that Moses wanted all the Jews to learn directly from God. Moses wanted our primary prayer not to be Shema Yisrael here, O oh Israel, but it should be Re'ei, See. He wanted us all to be prophets. He wanted all generations to be like Moses, and therefore there would be never a place for free choice and for, and for Yetzirah and et cetera. And God said that's not to be, because God's plan is that by free choice, and it's considered a greater level, by free choice we choose it, and that's why the Jewish prayer is not Israel, Yisrael, O oh Israel, but Shema Yisrael here, when you hear your free choice to, to agree or disagree. To have faith, or God forbid, deny the faith that you have internally. So, while we all have an inner Moses, we all have a voice of absolute truth, on the practical level, we're in our bodies, we're much closer to Aaron on a good day. We're definitely not someone that we are always consistent and always perfect and always and never challenged. Human beings have ups and downs. Time matters, pain matters, God forbid, loss matters. And that's Aaron's argument. Moses is trying to elevate us to a higher place. And Aaron says, Moses' Torah wasn't given to angels. Torah wasn't given just to Moses or to the Moses within the place within us where maybe we're, we're on that level. It was given to humans. It was given to Jewish people who are fallible. And therefore, Torah itself will take into account their fallibility, their weakness, and therefore will differentiate between one day and another and will have patience and kindness and cut some slack to them even as they struggle through their challenges, uh, which something that Moses doesn't really relate to. So we understand the argument. Ah, then Moses agrees to Aaron. And the Rebbe explains this on two levels, and this is fantastic. Rebbe explains this on two levels. Why does Moses agree to Aaron? If Moses represents truth, Aaron is presenting A compromised position of kindness, accept them with their weakness, even though they're not consistent and even though they're not always on the ball, that's okay.
0: That's not truth. Not only is Moses saying, You know what, Aaron, I'll give you this one, he's agreeing. Rebbe
1: expresses on two levels if you read the Sikh carefully. Firstly, he says, Aaron, I get it. I understand now the way things are from your perspective. And I need to agree because most Jews are are closer to you than to me. And then finally, the Rebbe says even further that Moses, Moses on his own level concedes and embraces that. So let's explore the two levels. Firstly, he says to Aaron, you're right. I understand that most people are not on that level of consistency. They're going to have days when they're more committed than others. And I, Moses, from the perspective of truth, see the virtue in that. The Rebbe explains this based on the Tanya that explains that sometimes by us, bainani or wannabe bainani, the non sadik even a glimpse of truth is also truth. The tzaddik is perfect truth. Translation, always consistent, never a bad day, never a place for sin, never even entertaining sin. Wonderful. For you and I, that's Chinese, we don't know what that means. So what's the value to our service? Is it a lie? And the answer is Tanya says no. For the bainani or for the wannabe bainani a glimpse of truth. For example, in the way he's explained in Tanya, at the moment of prayer, at least, I mean it. But if you mean it, how could you later sin? Or how could you entertain sin? There must be that you lied by prayer. No. At that moment, I meant it. Which is really the life story of all of us non saddics And a, a person could say, my whole service is a lie because I'm not consistent. I'm able to fail. I'm able to entertain failure. No. The Alta Rebbe explains, and the Rebbe explains it really well in this section of the Sicha, that there's a concept that if truth is revealed, even a glimpse of it, in our world of untruth, it is considered qualitatively true. The example is the idea that it says in the Shema, Bechol odecha with all your might. The Shema says you should love God with all your heart, all your soul, and then with all your might. What is all your might? You love him with all your heart. You love him with all your soul which is very high, even to to the case of God forbid martyrdom. What's the third thing with all your might? And it's
0: explained to mean, among other things, you should love him infinitely. You should give God infinite commitment. However, it doesn't say you should give God infinity. You should give God your infinity.
1: With all your might. Wait a minute. That
0: sounds like a contradiction in terms. All my infinity, but I'm finite. I can give God my whole infinity, but my whole being is finite. And the explanation is, it's true. We're finite
1: beings. We can't give God true infinity because we're finite. But when we go out of our own limitation, when we do a little more than we're accustomed to, for us, that's infinity. And that's a bona fide expression of true infinity. But it's not. All I did was, you know, study one extra hour of Torah, do one more mitzvah, go out of my comfort zone. Aha! Tanya says you went out of your comfort zone. For you, you broke the glass ceiling. You broke what for you was considered your limitation. You touched infinity. You didn't really, but you really did. But how so? This is a big subject in Hasidus, but the Rebbe touches it upon it here and is teaching us something very powerful. When I break my limitation. When I find a glimpse of infinity within finite, even though, all told,
0: it's going to be finite. But it is a reflection of infinity. You might say it has the quality of infinity. Kasidis gives various examples. It is said, for example, that gold is a reflection
1: of divine holiness. That's why it was only created for the temple. That's why it never tarnishes. Gold is clearly not divine. It's a physical mineral. How are you making it divine? How are you making it holy? It says gold was created only for the temple. It reflects an infinite beauty. It's not infinite beauty. It's limited. It has a price. It's expensive, but it has a price. And the answer is, of course, everything in the world is going to be finite. If it's a physical thing, it has to have definition and limitation. But within physicality, it's the mineral that's most precious. It's the mineral that reflects something that's beyond limitation. Proof never tarnishes. Proof it, 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 it's, it's, it's so hard to combine. It's so not available, and therefore, and it's so beautiful. Again, an example of how something infinite reflects in a finite space, of course, you're not going to find infinity in our world. It's impossible. But when you find a concept of breaking the limitation, like that gold is breaking the boundary of how beautiful something can be, aha, you touch the quality of infinity. Another example is given in Hasidus. Fire is an example for the soul, for the divine energy within us. Now, why? Because fire seems to have no limit. But of course it has a limit. You can say, where's the fire? But the fact that fire, in a sense, even though it's a physical thing, is beyond space. It's not beyond space because you can say, where's the fire? But it's beyond space in the sense that it can spread. Again, it's a reflection of beyond space within space. It's infinity as it expresses itself within the finite. So coming back to to us, to Aaron versus Moses, Aaron is arguing our case. They're limited beings. You want them to be perfect? You want them to have truth? It's impossible. You want them to be consistent? You want them to, 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 to always be on par with what they need to be as people? It's impossible. You want them to touch infinity? You want them to serve Hashem without limitation? They're not Moses. And Moses says, you're right. Not just you're right, because the reality is they're not Moses. You're right because their little window of infinity, in fact, encapsulates infinity. Like the gold reflects heaven, like the fire reflects spacelessness beyond space. Like each person's service with all your might really means with all infinity because it's a reflection of true infinity within your space. In plain English, you did the best you can. And a little more, you touch the infinity of Hashem. Says Moses, you're right. Not only are you right from the perspective of kindness, you're even right from the perspective of truth, that to some degree, there's truth in an inconsistent service. As per the Tanya, there is truth to a service that is heartfelt and is committed, even though it's not always going to be the same. Because on that level of that limited human being, the non-tzaddik, it's genuine. The Rebbe even pushes the envelope even further, which was the second point, and that is that not only does Moses' truth concede to kindness, that on the level of kindness there's some truth, qualitatively, but Moses concedes to kindness that on the level of
0: Moses, Aaron's approach bests him. Why so? Moses is heaven. Aaron is earth,
1: right? Moses is the level of the souls and the angels. Aaron is us humans. Hey, what's the purpose of creation? Heaven or earth? Earth. Purpose of creation is for God's truth to be known in heaven? No, the whole purpose of creation of everything, including heaven, is for earth a place of free choice, a place of loneliness, of lowliness, a place of imperfection, of finitude and of everything else, of brokenness, and for in that place for us to make a home for Hashem by struggle, trial and error, and etc. And therefore, Moses, in a sense, is humbled by Aaron. Moses, in a sense, says that the, that the that the the imperfect Jew, the limited little us, uses. We represent the real
0: purpose of truth, because even heaven was only created for the sake of earth finding its truth. So just giving a fine print.
1: I'm just going to put up the screen, if it's helpful, just to show what I just discussed. So we have Moses and Aaron. Moses takes the approach that all sacrifice should be eaten because the temple inauguration overrides mourning, where Aaron makes a difference between sacrifices of the moment versus sacrifices of the generation,
0: why they took their positions. So we explain the difference between Moses and Aaron: truth versus kindness, representing the
1: King Hashem or the broader the Jewish people. So Moses' attitude is consistency at all times. And Aaron understands that we're not always consistent. We have our good days and bad days and our ups and downs. Alternatively, the concept of whether death and mourning and impurity do or do not affect us is two approaches of Moses and Aaron. And therefore, from Moses' perspective, it doesn't make a difference if it's momentary or generational. The concept of time doesn't come onto the table. We're dealing with souls. We're dealing with with truth. Truth means consistency. Will it make a difference today, tomorrow, or the next day? And Aaron says, no, that makes a big difference. And in this particular case, legally plays itself out in the difference between momentary and generational. Alternatively, as in the footnote of the Rebbe, death, impurity, onanism, uh, does it have uh, the state of Aninut? Does it have an impact on the approach, or does it not? And they take the two approaches. Moshe accepts Aaron's approach. And here I'm going to present it in two steps. One is that he accepts it, and one that he actually agrees. One is that he accepts it, that what? this value to kindness from the perspective of truth. What, why? Because even a limited matter of truth and infinity is a reflection of absolute truth and true infinity. As we discussed in three examples, with all your might, meaning with all your infinity, that's a contradiction in
0: terms, And the explanation is you give your infinity, you break your limitation. It's a glimpse of true infinity, which is a fascinating thing. Someone else might be doing much more in Torah and mitzvahs than me, but for he and she, that's,
1: that's their norm. And if I or you go the extra mile, which is not the norm for us, we are touching infinity and they're not. Something to contemplate the example of the gold which created for the temple, even though it's a physical thing and it's a limited thing, but it reflects a beauty that's otherworldly. The other analogy is the fire, it's a reflection of the divine soul, it's a reflection of infinity beyond space, even though it's not truly. And that's how Moses accepts it and says kindness has something to say about truth. There is truth even in the place of accommodation for the human limitation. And then the Rebbe explains that Moses goes even further. This is expressed in the Sikha, step by step. Moses says, no, real truth is about kindness because the purpose of heaven is for truth to be revealed on earth. We don't say, we don't say the purpose is for God to be known in the heavens. The purpose is for God to be known on earth. So Moses says, "Aha! not only do I need to concede to Aaron because they're human beings and I need to give them some slack because they're, they're they're not perfect but that's in fact the purpose the purpose if, if you could be so bold is not Moses is the purpose is Aaron's the purpose is not perfect Jews doing perfect things but the purpose is imperfect Jews trying to live up to some level of perfection because that's the idea and therefore Moses celebrates Aaron's thing and he likes it I eat that I like it it's good I want to just conclude what I write here at the bottom, the Rebbe's approach to outreach. And again, I had this class in my own Chabad house group,
0: and I pointed out what I think is the last point of the Sicha, that this spells
1: out the approach of the Rebbe to outreach, the Chabad approach, which Bar Hashem has been, you might say, mimicked and copied and embraced by many other Kirov groups today. But in a sense, it's still unique uh, uniquely, the Rebbe's approach, and that is that you know, how do we look at a Jew who is not doing Shabbos and kosher and, and, and davening three times a day? Does he count or not count? So you have two approaches. Before the Rebbe came onto the scene with his outreach and with his approach, you had two approaches: the Frum approach and the secular approach, or the Reform approach. The Frum approach said, "What do you mean? He, he's not he's not he's not doing Yiddishkeit. He doesn't count." He's trying. Stop with the trying. He's keeping Shabbat or he's not. He's or He's not. It's a yes or no. Torah is truth. You can't divide it. You can't play games. You can't pick and choose. Nisht is nisht. He's not a Shomer Shabbos. He, he, he's not really doing it. He doesn't count. His whole thing, it doesn't count. On the other side of the spectrum, you have, let's call it, the reform approach, or what have you, which try to legitimize any type of Judaism. Judaism is not about truth. It's about kindness
0: whatever you like, whatever your preference. Now there's a fallacy in each of these approaches. The fallacy
1: of the, uh, you know, let's call it the, the Orthodox firm approach which says if you're not doing it all, it's nothing. That's a big problem. You're excluding a lot a lot of people who, who, who are not on par with that because they didn't grow up with it, they don't know about it. Maybe they're doing their best and more and they, and they don't count. a problem. You're excluding most Jews, so you're going to be left with that attitude, which was the attitude before the Rebbe came onto the scene, with with four percent of Jews that that matter, and the rest, we write them off. They they don't really count. They don't make a difference because they're not not living up to truth. Conversely, the reform approach is, is basically making a mockery of the whole thing. There's no truth. What is Judaism? Everybody has their own truth. Everybody does whatever they want, and they pick and choose and whatever it is, it's all good if it makes you feel good. It's wonderful. How could that be truth at all? How could that be related to Hasha? Came along the Rabbi,
0: and said. And this is the Rabbi's approach and the approach of Chabad. Of course, there's a Torah, an absolute truth. By the same token, that absolute truth, which is unchanged, all the
1: laws, all the mitzvahs, you can't pick and choose the truth. The truth is what it is. Unchanged. By the same token. The Rebbe says, I want you to go out to a yid and say to that yid, I want you to do one more mitzvah than you're doing till now. But what do you mean? He's only doing one more mitzvah. He's putting it on till one time. How is that valuable? He's not doing it all. It's not truth. Excuse me. The truth is that Hashem gave the Torah and he gave the Torah for the sake of his people. This is one of Hashem's people. And right now, where that person is holding on their station in life, this is going to be a huge step. Of course, it's true. If they do their best right now, of course, it's true. It's like if your child comes home with less than an A on the report card, what do you do? But the kid did their best. Maybe they should have gotten a C and they got a B. So if you're a foolish parent, you say, well, you didn't get an A. I don't care. You throw them out. But if you understand, hello, it's not about the A. It's about the child. Child's bees to you and A plus plus because you care about the kid. If we understand that Hashem gave the Torah and He didn't give it to angels, He didn't give it in the abstract. He gave it to His children, the Jewish people, and by divine providence, the Jewish people, the vast majority, ninety six percent of them, let's call it, did not grow up a Yiddish guy. Why did that happen? So that they should be wiped off and written off, or so that they should be embraced? Let them get a C. Let them get a B minus. Let them get a B plus. Let them grow. And within those glimpses of truth is a mirror of absolute truth. In fact, you might say that's the real purpose of our generation, to find that yid and bring him a step closer. Until, as the Rebbe concludes, the Sicha, which is a reflection of the Messianic age of Mashiach, where truth and kindness will merge, where us humans on our infallible level, especially in our time of so many vast majority of Jews, totally lost and confused, including from, from birth Jews, but there's so much confusion and Temptation and challenge. And yet marrying that with truth, that by free choice and by trial and error and by struggle, we rise to the
0: occasion and live lives of truth. And that represents the perfection of Moses and Aaron of heaven and earth coming together.